This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ted DeLorme in Fort Mill, South Carolina, during July and August of 2006. Love Conquers All by Robert C. Benchley. Chapter 11 Roll Your Own. Inside Points on Building and Maintaining a Private Tennis Court. Now that the Great War is practically over, until the next one begins, there isn't very much that you can do with that large plot of ground which used to be your war garden. It is too small for a running track and too large for nasturtiums. Obviously, the only thing left is a tennis court. One really ought to have a tennis court of one's own. Those at the club are always so full that on Saturdays and Sundays the people waiting to play look like the gallery at a Davis Cup match. And even when you do get located, you have two sets of balls to chase, yours and those of the people in the next court. The first thing is to decide among yourselves just what kind of court it is to be. There are three kinds grass, clay, and cornmeal. In Maine, gravel courts are also very popular. Father will usually hold out for a grass court because it gives a slower bounce to the ball and father isn't so quick on the bounce as he used to be. All mother insists on is plenty of headroom. Junior and Mertis will want a clay one because you can dance on a clay one in the evening. The court, as finished, will be a combination grass and dirt with a little goldenrod late in August. A little study will be necessary before laying out the court. I mean, you can't just go out and mark a court by guesswork. You must first learn what the dimensions are supposed to be and get as near to them as is humanly possible. Whereas there might be a slight margin for error in some measurements, it is absolutely essential that both sides are the same length Otherwise, you might end up by lobbing back to yourself if you got very excited. The worst place to get the dope on how to arrange a tennis court is in the Encyclopedia Britannica. The article on tennis was evidently written by the Archbishop of Canterbury. It begins by explaining that in America, tennis is called court tennis. The only answer to that is, you're a cockeyed liar. The whole article is like this. The name tennis, it says, probably comes from the French tenez, meaning take it, play. More likely, in my opinion, it is derived from the Polish tenith, meaning go on, that was not outside. During the 14th century, the game was played by the highest people in France. Louis X died from a chill contracted after playing. Charles V was devoted to it, although he tried in vain to stop it as a pastime for the lower classes, the origin of the country club. Charles VI watched it being played from the room where he was confined during his attack of insanity, and Dugeschlin amused himself with it during the siege of Dinan. And although it doesn't say so in the encyclopedia, Robert C. Benchley, after playing for the first time in the season of 1922, 
was so lame under the right shoulder blade that he couldn't lift a glass to his mouth. This fascinating historical survey of tennis goes on to say that in the reign of Henry IV, the game was so popular that it was said that there were more tennis players in Paris than drunkards in England. Well, the drunkards of England were so upset by this boast that they immediately started a drive for membership with the slogan, Five thousand more drunkards by April 15th, and to hell with France. <laughs> One thing led to another, until war was declared. The net does not appear until the 17th century. Up until that time, a rope, either fringed or tasseled, was stretched across the court. This probably had to be abandoned because it was so easy to crawl under it and chase your opponent. There might also have been ample opportunity for the person playing at the net, or at the rope, to catch the eye of the player directly opposite by waving his racket high in the air and then to kick him under the rope knocking him for a loop while the ball was being put into play in his territory. You have to watch those Frenchmen every minute. The Encyclopedia Britannica gives 15 lines to tennis in America. It says that few tennis courts existed in America before 1880, but that now there are courts in Boston, New York, Chicago, Tuxedo, and Lakewood, and several other places. Everyone try hard to think now just where those other places are. Which reminds us that one of them is going to be in your side yard where the garden used to be. After you have got the dimensions from the encyclopedia, call up a professional tennis court maker and get him to do the job for you. Just tell him that you want a tennis court. Once it is built, the fun begins. According to the arrangement, each member of the family is to have certain hours during which it belongs to them and no one else. Thus the children can play before breakfast and after breakfast until the sun gets around so that the west court is shady. Then daddy and mother and sprightly friends may take it over. Later in the afternoon, the children have it again, and if there is any light left after dinner, daddy can take a whirl at the ball. What actually happens is this. Right after breakfast, Roger Beeman, who lives across the street and who is home for the summer with a couple of college friends who are just dandy-looking, will come over and ask if they may use the court until someone wants it. They will let Mertis play with them and perhaps Mertis's girl chum from Westover. They will play five sets, running into scores like 19 to 17, and at lunchtime will make plans for a ride into the country for the afternoon. Daddy will stick around in the offing, all dressed up in his tennis clothes, waiting to play with Uncle Ted. But somehow or other, every time he approaches the court, the young people will be in the middle of a set. After lunch, Lillian Neiman, who lives three houses down the street, will come up and ask if she may bring her cousin, just on from the west, to play a set until someone wants the court. Lillian's cousin has never played tennis before, but she has done a lot of croquet and thinks she ought to pick tennis up rather easily. For three hours there is a great deal of screaming, with Lillian and her cousin hitting the ball an aggregate of eleven times, while Daddy patters up and down the sidelines, all dressed up in white, 
practicing shots against the netting. Finally, the girls will ask him to play with them, and he will thank them and say that he has to go in the house now as he is all perspiration and is afraid of catching cold. After dinner, there is dancing on the court by the young people. Anyway, Daddy is getting pretty old for tennis. Chapter 12 Do Insects Think? In a recent book entitled The Psychic Life of Insects, Professor Bouvier says that we must be careful not to credit the little winged fellows with intelligence when they behave in what seems like an intelligent manner. They may be only reacting. I would like to confront the professor with an instance of reasoning power on the part of an insect which cannot be explained away in any such manner. During the summer of 1899, while I was at work on my treatise, Do Larvae Laugh, we kept a female wasp at our cottage in the Adirondacks. It really was more like a child of our own than a wasp, except that it looked more like a wasp than a child of our own. That was one of the ways we told the difference. It was still a young wasp when we got it, thirteen or fourteen years old, and for some time we could not get it to eat or drink. It was so shy. Since it was a female, we decided to call it Miriam, but soon the children's nickname for it, Pudge, became a fixture, and Pudge it was from that time on. One evening, I had been working late in my laboratory, fooling round with some gin and other chemicals, and in leaving the room I tripped over a nine of diamonds which someone had left lying on the floor, and knocked over my card catalogue containing the names and addresses of all the larvae worth knowing in North America. The cards went everywhere. I was too tired to stop to pick them up that night, and went sobbing to bed, just as mad as I could be. As I went, however, I noticed the wasp flying about in circles over the scattered cards. Maybe Pudge will pick them up, I said half-laughingly to myself, never thinking for one moment that such would be the case. When I came down the next morning, Pudge was still asleep over in her box, evidently tired out. And, well, she might have been, for there on the floor lay the cards, scattered all about, just as I had left them the night before. The faithful little insect had buzzed about all night, trying to come to some decision about picking them up and arranging them in the catalogue box, and then figuring out for herself that, as she knew practically nothing about larvae of any sort except wasp larvae, she would probably make more of a mess of rearranging them than as if she left them on the floor for me to fix. It was just too much for her to tackle, and, discouraged, she went over and lay down in her box, where she cried herself to sleep. If this is not an answer to Professor Bouvier's statement that insects have no reasoning power, I do not know what is. Chapter 13 The Score in the Stands The opening week of the baseball season brought out few surprises. The lineup in the grandstands was practically the same as when the season closed last fall. 
most of the fans busying themselves before the first game started by picking out old 1921 seat checks and October peanut crumbs out of the pockets of their lightweight overcoats. Old-timers on the two teams recognized the familiar faces in the bleachers and were quick to give them a welcoming cheer. The game by innings, as it was conducted by the spectators, is as follows. First inning. Scanlon, sitting in the first base bleachers, yelled to Ruth to lead off with a homer. Thibbets sharpened his pencil. Lehman and O'Rourke in the south stand engaged in a bitter controversy over Peckinpah's last season batting average. No runs. Second inning. Scanlon yelled to Bodie to wang out a double. Turtelot said that Bodie couldn't do it. Scanlon said, oh, is that so? Turtelot said, yes, that's so, and what do you know about that? Bodie wanged out a double, and Scanlon's collar came undone, and he lost his derby. Stevens announced that this made Bodie's batting average 1,000 for the season so far. Joslin laughed. Third inning. Thibbets sharpened his pencil. Zinzer yelled to Mays to watch out for a fast one. Steinway yelled out to Mays to watch out for a slow one. Mays fanned. O'Rourke called out and asked Brazil how all the little Brazil nuts were. Levy turned to O'Rourke and said he'd Brazil nut him. O'Rourke said, yeah? When do you start doing it? Levy said, right now. O'Rourke said, all right, come on, I'm waiting. Levy said, yeah? O'Rourke said, well, why don't you come, ya big haddock? Levy said he'd wait for O'Rourke outside where there weren't any ladies. No runs. Fourth inning. Scanlon called out to Ruth to knock a homer. Thibbets sharpened his pencil. Scanlon yelled, a boy, babe, what I tell you, when Ruth got a single. Fifth inning, Mrs. Whitebait asked Mr. Whitebait how you marked a home run on the scorecard. Mr. Whitebait said, why do you have to know? No one has knocked a home run. Mrs. Whitebait said that Babe Ruth ran home in the last inning. Yes, I know, said Mr. Whitebait, but it wasn't a home run. Mrs. W. asked him with some asperity just why it wasn't a home run if a man ran home, especially if it was Babe Ruth. Mr. W. said, I'll tell you later. I want to watch the game. Mrs. Whitebait began to cry a little. Mr. Whitebait groaned and snatched a card away from her and marked a home run for Ruth in the fourth inning. Sixth inning. Thurston called out to Hasty not to let them fool him. Wicker said that where Hasty got fooled in the first place was when he let them tell him he could play baseball. Unknown man said that he was too hasty and laughed very hard. Thurston said that Hasty was a better pitcher than Mays when he was in form. Unknown man said, eh? and laughed very hard again. Wicker asked how many times in seven years Hasty was in form, and Thurston replied, Often enough for you. Unknown man said that what Hasty needed was some hasty pudding, and laughed so hard that his friend had to take him out. Tibbets 
sharpened his pencil. Seventh inning. Libby called everybody up, as if he had just originated the idea, and seemed proudly pleased when everyone stood up. Tossig threw money to the boy for a bag of peanuts, who tossed the bag to Levy, who kept it. Tossig to boy to Levy. Scanlon yelled to Ruth to come through with a homer. Ruth knocked a single, and Scanlon yelled, "Atta boy, babe! All the way round, all the way round, babe!" Mrs. Whitebait asked Mr. Whitebait which were the Clevelands. Mr. Whitebait said very quietly that the Clevelands weren't playing today, just New York and Philadelphia, and that only two teams could play the game at the same time, that perhaps next year they would have it so that Cleveland and Philadelphia could both play New York at once, but the rules would have to be changed first. Mrs. Whitebait said that he didn't have to be so nasty about it. Mr. W. said, "'My God, who's being nasty?' Mrs. W. said that the only reason she came up with him anyway to see the Giants play was because then she knew that he wasn't off with a lot of bootleggers. Mr. W. said that it wasn't the Giants but the Yankees that she was watching, and where did she get that bootlegger stuff? Mrs. W. said never mind when she got it. No runs. Eighth inning. Tibbets sharpened his pencil. Littner got up and went home. Scanlon yelled to Ruth to end up the game with a homer. Ruth singled. Scanlon yelled at a babe and went home. Ninth inning. Stevens began figuring up the players' batting averages for the season thus far. Wicker called over to Thurston and asked him how Mr. Hasty was now. Thurston said, That's all right how he is. Mrs. Whitebait said that she intended to go to her sister's for dinner, and that Mr. Whitebait could do as he liked. Mr. Whitebait told her to bet that he would do just that. Tibbets broke his pencil. Final score, New York 11... Philadelphia one. Chapter fourteen, Midwinter Sports. These are melancholy days for the newspaper sporting writers. The complaints are all in from old grads of Miami who feel that there weren't enough Miami men on the All-American football team, and it is too early to begin writing about the baseball training camps. Once in a while, some lady swimmer goes around a tank 300 times, or the holder of the Class B squash championship meets all comers in court tilt. But aside from that, the sporting world is buried with the nuts for the winter. Since sporting writers must live, why not introduce a few items of general interest into their columns? Accounts of the numerous contests of speed and endurance which take place during the winter months in the homes of our citizenry. For instance, the nightly races between Mr. and Mrs. Theodore M. Twamley to see who can get into bed first, leaving the opening of the windows and putting out of the light for the loser, 
was won last night for the first time this winter by Mr. Twomley. Strategy entered largely into the victory, Mr. Twomley getting into bed with most of his clothes on. An interesting exhibition of endurance was given by Martin W. Lasbert at his home last evening when he covered the distance between the cold-water tap in his bathroom to the bedside of his young daughter, Mertris, eighteen times in three hours, this being the number of her demands for water to drink. When interviewed after the eighteenth lap, Mr. Lasbert said, "'I wouldn't do it another time, not if the child were parching.' Shortly after that, he made his nineteenth trip. As was exclusively predicted in these columns yesterday, and in accordance with all the dope, Chester F. Fleurley suffered his sixtieth consecutive defeat last evening at the hands of the American Radiator Company, the builders of his furnace. With all respect for Mr. Fleurley's pluck in attempting, night after night, to dislodge clinkers caught in the grate, it must be admitted even by his host of friends that he might much better be engaged in some gainful occupation. The great tackle by the doughty challenger last night was one of the fine-tooth comb variety, the non-sifto number 114863, in which the clinker is caught by a patent clutch and held securely until the wrecking crew arrives. At the end of the bout, Mr. Flurley was led away to his dressing-room, suffering from lacerated hands and internal injuries. "'I'm through,' was his only comment. This morning's winners in the Limedale Commuters Contest for seats on the shady side of the car on the 828 were L.Y. Ehrman, Sidney M. Gisseth, John F. Nothman, and Louis Leck. All the other seats were won by commuters from Luce Valley, the next station above Limedale. In trying to scramble up the car steps in advance of lady passengers, Merton Steef had his right shin badly skinned and hit his jaw on the bottom step. Time was not called while his injuries were being looked after. Before an enthusiastic and notable gathering, young Lester J. Dimmick, age three, put to rout his younger brother, Carl Whitney Dimmick, Jr., age two, in their matutinal contest to see which can dispose of his Wheatina first. In the early stages of the match, it began to look as if the bantamweight would win in a walk, owing to his trick of throwing spoonfuls of the breakfast food over his shoulder and under the tray of his high chair. The referees soon put a stop to this, however, and specified that the wheat ina must be placed in the mouth. This cramped Dimmick Jr.'s form, and it soon became impossible for him to locate his mouth at all. At this point, young Lester took the lead, which he maintained until he crossed the line an easy winner. As a reward, he was relieved of the necessity of eating another dish of wheat ina. Stephen L. Agnew was the lucky guest in the home of Oren F. McNeil this weekend, beating out Lee Stable for the first chance at the bathtub on Sunday morning. Both contestants came out of their bedrooms at the same time, but Agnew's room being nearer the bathroom, he made the distance down the hall in two seconds quicker time than his somewhat heavier opponent, and was further aided by the breaks of the game when Stable dropped his sponge halfway down the straightaway. 
Agnew's time in the bathroom was one hour and twenty-five minutes. Chapter 15 Reading the Funnies Aloud One of the minor, enjoyable features of having children is the necessity of reading aloud to them the colored comic sections in the Sunday papers. And no matter how good your intentions may have been at first to keep the things out of the house, the comic sections, not the children, sooner or later there comes a Sunday when you find that your little boy has, in some underground fashion, learned of the raucous existence of Simon Simp or the Breakback Babies, and is demanding the current installment with a fervor which will not be denied. Sunday morning in our house has now become a time for low subterfuge on the part of Doris and me in our attempts to be somewhere else when Junior appears dragging the funnies, a loathsome term in itself, to be read to him. I make believe that the furnace looks as if it might fall apart at any minute if it is not watched closely, and Doris calls from upstairs that she may be some time over the weekly accounts. But sooner or later, Junior ferrets one of us out and presents himself beaming. Now will you read me the funnies, is the dread sentence which opens the siege. It then becomes a rather ill-natured contest between Doris and me to see which can pick the more bearable pages to read, leaving the interminable ones, containing great balloons pregnant with words, for the other. I usually find that Doris has read the Briggs page to Junior before I get downstairs, the Briggs page and possibly the drawings of Voigt's Lester de Pester being the only department that an adult mind can dwell on and keep its self-respect. "'Now I will read you Briggs,' says Doris, with the air of an indulgent parent, but settling down with great relish to the task, "'and Daddy will read you the others.' Having been stuck for over a year with the others, I have now reached a stage where I utilize a sort of second sight in the reading, whereby the words are seen and pronounced without ever registering on my brain at all. And as I sit with Junior impassive on my lap, just why children should so frantically seek to have the funnies read to them is a mystery, for they never by any chance seem to derive the slightest emotional pleasure from the recital, but sit in stony silence, as if they rather disapproved of the whole thing after all. I have evolved a system which enables me to carry on a little constructive thinking while reading aloud, thereby keeping the time from being entirely wasted. Heaven knows we get little enough opportunity to sit down and think things out in this busy workaday world, so that this little period of mental freedom is in the nature of a godsend. Thus, what is being read aloud? Here he says, gee, but this is tough luck, a new automobile and no place to go, and the dog is saying, it ain't so tough at that. Then, here in the next picture, the old man says, Percy ain't in my class as a chauffeur. 
He ain't as fearless as me. And this one is saying, Hello there. That looks like the old tin Lizzie that I gave to the general last year. I guess I'll take a peek and see what's up. Well, what are you doing still hanging around here? What do you think this is, a hotel? Say, where do you get that stuff? You ain't no justice of the peace, you know. Wow, let me out, let me out, I say. I'll show you biff, biff, wham, zowie, etc., etc. Concurrent thinking. Here I am in the thirties, and it is high time that I made something of myself. Is my job as good as I deserve? By studying nights, I might fit myself for a better position in the foreign exchange department, but that would mean an outlay of money. Furthermore, is it, on the whole, wise to attempt to hurry the workings of fate? Is not perhaps the determinist right who says that what we are and what we ever can be is already written in the books, that we cannot alter the workings of destiny one iota? This theory is, of course, tenable, but on the whole, it seems to me that if I were to take the matter into my own hands, etc., etc. And then, when the last pot of boiling water has been upset over the last grandfather's back, and Junior has slid down from your lap as near satisfied as he will ever be, you have ten or fifteen minutes of constructive thinking behind you, which if practiced every Sunday, will make you president of the company within a few years. This concludes Part 3 of Love Conquers All by Robert C. Benchley, read by Ted DeLorme for LibriVox. This book will continue on future files.